I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through interviews, commentary, and conversation with best-selling authors. Today, I interviewed David Rubenstein, author of the new book, The American Story, Conversations with Master Historians, which came out October 29, 2019. And we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on December 5. Enjoy. So without further ado, it's my privilege to introduce our guest and speaker this morning, David Rubenstein. David wowed us two nights ago at the SMU Tate Lecture. My wife and I have been subscribers for 30 years, and his was in the top five, if not the top three of all time. Uh, but David, I'm sure... It was number one. Okay. I'll t- I have you tied for first with, with John Grisham and Marvin Hamlish. How about yeah, that? That's pretty good. Is that okay? That's pretty good. Okay. Okay. I don't want to slight you. Uh, but I'm sure you all know, but I'll go ahead and review quickly the amazing uh, career and life of David that brings us uh, to us today. First of all, uh, as far as the business side goes, he's the co-founder and the co-executive chairman of the Carlisle Group, one of the leading private equity firms in the world. But he's made his name really, uh, from my perspective at least, is his amazing commitment to public service. He is currently the chair of the Smithsonian Institution, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Kennedy Center, and many other boards. And he's the man who really created and and epitomizes the concept of patriotic philanthropy. Uh, For any of you who go to Washington, D.C. these days, you can look at all our most historic buildings, and you can say thank you, David Rubenstein, for restoring them and maintaining them. He spent hundreds of millions of dollars to restore the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial. He just committed $10 million for the restoration of the Jefferson Memorial, the, the, the uh, U.S. Marine Corps War Memorial, and so many other things. Big supporter of the Library of Congress. And now he's a, quote, author, although he's really an interviewer author, which I can relate to. And uh, if you haven't been watching his David Rubenstein show on Bloomberg TV and PBS, you don't want to miss it. I thought I was a pretty good interviewer, and then I saw David and I said, I don't have a chance. But uh, anyway, please welcome David Rubenstein. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for that uh, kind and overly generous introduction, and thank you very much all for coming uh, this early. I am so surprised that this many people would get up this early to hear a little bit about American history, but thank you very much. And Harlan, thank you very much for restoring this building and so many other things that you've done uh, in the history history area. I'm just trying to catch up to Harlan, and I'm way behind. You all actually somewhat look alike, which is kind of scary. Maybe I need to wear darker glasses. But let's start talking about this wonderful book, which came out about a month ago, uh, made the bestseller list, well worth everybody's time. And it's the uh, edited transcripts of interviews that David did in what's called the Congressional Dialogue Series, which took place at the Library of Congress. It started in 2013. It started at David's initiative. And the most intriguing thing is the people in the audience for all these interviews were members of Congress and their spouses. So, David, I know that you know many senators and members of Congress from all these series, as well as the relationships you have. What's your impression of how much our federal government's leaders actually want to learn history and use it to influence their thinking on policy? Members of Congress, in my view, have a really difficult job. To be serious about it, they get paid about $180,000 a year which you can say is a lot, it's above the norm, the, the, the median in the United States. But if you have to maintain two homes, have a family, um, it's not a staggering amount of money. And uh, they have refused to increase their salary at least for the last 10 years. Uh, they have enormous pressures to come back to the district or come back to the state. They have a lot of lobbying pressures on them. It's not an easy job. And I'm honestly very surprised that we can get the quality of people we get to do this job because the pay is so low and so forth, among other problems. Members of Congress, um, they are making the laws, or at least they used to be making laws. We don't pass that many laws anymore. But they are 
people that want to know American history because they are, in effect, making history. So when I started this series in, 19, in, in 2013, the idea was that people should remember history because if you don't remember history, you're probably going to make the same mistakes your predecessors make. So learn history and maybe you can avoid some of the mistakes. And that's a, a well-known principle. The theory was that members of Congress, more than anybody else, should know what the mistakes are we made in the past. So I thought if we could have a dinner, give the members of Congress a free dinner, they would probably come. We do it at a, um, a place that's easy for them to get to, at the Library of Congress, because there are underground passages from the, the House and Senate offices, so they can come there easily. And uh, we have um, a reception room, almost the size of this, not quite as nice, but a reception room of this this type, where we have artifacts relating to the book that we're going to talk about. So if it's Thomas Jefferson book, we'll be things relating to Thomas Jefferson the Library of Congress has. Then we go down, we have a dinner, and I encourage the members to sit with people from the opposite party and the opposite house. And interestingly, because we don't have conference committees so much anymore, uh, because we don't have that much legislation, most people in the House don't really know that most people in the Senate anymore. So encourage them to sit together. And it's like an era of good feelings. They come together. Uh, we've now done about 50 of them. And the members of Congress come with their dog-eared copies of the books that they've read from the authors, and they want them signed just like anybody else. So to answer your question, members of Congress are interested in American history. Uh, the only uh, negative of the whole program, I won't say negative, is... Um, Obviously, when I do the interviews, I try to get it done in about 45 minutes or so, cover the whole book, which is obviously a lot to do in 45 minutes. But members of Congress, they want to ask questions, too. So we, we allow time for that, but they tend to make statements more than questions. That's hard to believe. They, <laughs> so, um, we, we, you know, so I didn't put that into the book because I thought once I start putting the statements in, it would be too complicated. So it was just the interviews, and um, we've distilled the interviews to, to, to you know, a readable uh, length. Well, the book has uh, 16 chapters. Uh, Ten of them are interviews with biographers of major presidents, and six of them are of non-presidents, Alexander Hamilton, Ben Franklin, The Founding Mothers, Cokie Roberts' book, Charles Lindbergh, Martin Luther King, and then the final interview is with Chief Justice uh, John Roberts. So you just said you did over 50 interviews. What was your process for choosing the 16 that make up the American story? Well, um I have to get dates that members of Congress can come, and that typically just Tuesday to Thursday because they're not there Mondays and Fridays. So you have a limited Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Then I have to get an author that will be appealing to the members of Congress. Therefore, it's a name that they may have heard of. And then I have to have my own schedule. So getting that all together, there are you know finite number of people that can, can come on those various dates. I'm looking for authors that are a cross-section of American history, but people who have written books that members of Congress probably would come and want to hear about it. And the members of Congress, I should say, this, the good and bad thing is they say to me, seriously, they say, this is the most interesting thing they're doing in Congress, is going to these dinners. And I say to myself, uh-oh, this is the most interesting thing they're doing. What are you doing the rest of the day? But, um, <laughs> and they call it date night. Um, members of Congress invite their spouses, or if they're not married, their girlfriends, or their boyfriends, if they're women. Um, they come, and they, they come because it's an evening that they can... Uh, not have any political pressures, and they can actually learn something. So, uh, I, you know, I, n not everything I've tried has worked out. In fact, most things I've tried haven't worked out probably in life. This one seems to have worked out. And, uh, you know, I, I pick the authors based on their name recognition. And, and, you know, and I also want somebody that can be a good raconteur. Some people write great books, but they can't talk about them very well. Some people write terrible books, and they can talk about things very really well. I'm looking for somebody that's written a great book, but actually can talk very well. And it's a combination that some people have, like Doris Kearns Goodwin, David McCullough, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Well, you say in your introduction that the book contains, quote, snapshots of American history, right. and it's not intended to be comprehensive. But having said that, there are some missing snapshots. Uh, among presidents, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, Woodrow Wilson, Andrew Jackson, among non-presidents, Edison, Einstein, Jackie Robinson, and major events, Reconstruction, World War I. So how did you decide to leave okay. out these important people as part of the... Well, um, I, I should tell you, I'm now 70 years old, and I'm on four university boards. I've been on the, I'm on the University of Chicago board, 
I'm on the Harvard board, I was a chair of the Duke board, and I was on the Hopkins board. And I was embarrassed to be on all these boards and around these universities and never having written a book. So I figured I better write a book before I die. <laughs> and, um, you know, as you get older, you realize you're not going to live that much longer. So I started to race this book to get this book out. And it wasn't like publishers were coming to me say, please, we want you to ha have a book. And if you want to make it 500 pages, whatever you want. So the publisher said, all right, this is the length of the book. You're a first-time author. We'll give you this much space, and we'll see how it goes. So, you know, like anything in life, you have to pick and choose. So I pick these people. I have another 16 ready to go. If this book sells enough, uh, and the publisher will say, hey, let's do another one. I have those people you mentioned uh, ready for the next one. So I picked these people because I thought the interviews were pretty good, the names were pretty recognizable, but I could have picked many other people. And I made some mistakes. I should have picked some people other than, than the ones I did. But on the whole, I'm reasonably happy with it. Okay. Well, obviously, the book has a chapter on George Washington, a biographer of George Washington, and Doris Kearns Goodwin on Abraham Lincoln. And every presidential ranking poll that I've ever seen ranks Lincoln first and Washington second. Do you agree with that ranking? I do. Let me explain. Um, Abraham Lincoln wasn't the obvious choice to be the nominee of the Republican Party in 1860. He was maybe the fourth most likely person. But the convention was held in Chicago, which is an advantage for him. Um, he laid very low, played possum for a while, and he told everybody that, you know, he was just going to support um, other people, and he just asked people to pick them him second. In other words, he said, if you want to support Suborn Seward, fine, but if he doesn't make it, support me second. And ultimately, all the others knocked each other out. He became the nominee. After he was elected, and in those days, you didn't campaign. When you were the nominee, you just sat in your home and other people did the campaigning for you. When he was elected, the South decided that they would secede because they believed, rightly or wrongly, that he would end slavery eventually. The real, he actually was not against slavery. People have a hard time remembering this, and I didn't know this, so I just dug into it. There was something that today is called the 13th Amendment. That abolished slavery, 13th Amendment. And if you saw the movie Lincoln, that was what the movie Lincoln was all about, the House of Representatives passing the 13th Amendment. Later had to be go to the states for ratification. But Lincoln was so much against ending slavery because he thought it was part of the Constitution and he didn't have the right to change it. He just didn't want slavery to be expanded out west. But people didn't necessarily believe him. At the time, the pre previous president was James Buchanan. He supported what was then called the 13th Amendment, which passed Congress but didn't get ratified. That said, we are going to reaffirm that slavery is part of the Constitution. That was the original 13th Amendment. And Lincoln, in his inaugural address, supported that. He supported the then 13th Amendment, which said slavery is part of the law. We can't change it. So he obviously changed, but um, people didn't believe him, and they really felt in the end he would try to get rid of slavery. And so the South seceded. If it had been up to me, I would say, okay, if you want to go away, fine. I've got my own country. I'll run the North. And he didn't do that. Most people would have said, goodbye, South. You know, you have your own country. We'll have our country. And, but he, he held the Union together. Now, at the cost of 600,000 men and women who died, um, among other great tragedies that occurred in that, in that uh, conflict. But I think no other person probably would have had the ability to hold the country together. He also, uh, in the end, issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which began the path towards ending slavery. George Washington uh, began, didn't want to be president of the United States. He was uh, 57 years old, and no male member of his family had ever lived past 50. He figured, what's the prospect of my living long enough to really serve as president? But he, he, after he won the war, the Revolutionary War, he went back to Mount Vernon, was happy to do so, didn't want to do anything else, presided over the Constitutional Convention, didn't want to do that, but he thought it was necessary. And then he was elected president, didn't want to serve, and he did. He began the process of what it is to be president. He made it not a royal kind of position. He made it uh, a position where it wasn't a lifetime thing. Many people thought that George Washington would want to stay forever and then have one of his... Uh, you know, let's say grandchildren or something succeed him. Um, he didn't want to do that. He didn't want it to be a royal kind of uh, uh, position. So those two men are, the, in my view, the two greatest presidents uh, we've had. And it, but it's a different time. And you know, of course, if you ever met Lincoln or if you ever met Washington, you would see they had flaws like all of us do. And and whenever you get up close to somebody famous, you realize that he or she is not as great as their image. And I'm sure if I had a chance to interview George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, I would ask him about some of their flaws, but they may not want to ask them, uh, answer them. But uh, I think those two are the, the two greatest presidents we've had, yes. Mm -hmm. Now, historians, and you've interviewed the top ones here, 
in the opinion of many, have disproportionate influence over who has the greatest legacy. Right. Uh, we can look at what David McCullough did for John Adams and Harry Truman. We can look what Ron Chernow did for Alexander Hamilton, and most recently Ulysses Grant. We can look at what Robert Caro has done for Lyndon Johnson. So are you aware of a prominent figure in American history who you believe is worthy of being elevated by a great historian, but that that book hasn't been written yet? Well, it takes a while for people's reputation to change. And uh, I would say, I, uh, when I had my investment firm and I was involved in it more actively, I recruited a person uh, to join named Jim Baker. And I thought he was the great ex-Secretary of, ex of State. And I would say he's one of the most impressive people I've ever met. I could see why he was successful as Chief of Staff, while he was successful as uh, Secretary of Treasury and successful as Secretary of State. And he joined my firm when I thought he was an older man. He was then 63. I'm now 70, so he actually was young. Um, and I spent 15 years with him, and I thought he was among the most impressive non-elected officials that I ever met. But of the presidents, he brought into our firm as an advisor a man named George Herbert Walker Bush. And I got to be very close to him and, and his family, and I would say that uh, he was among the, the nicest people I've ever met in my entire life. Not the nicest ex-president, the nicest people I've ever met. So I, 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 he's an extraordinary man, and I would say uh, his reputation will, in, history, in time, go up. There has been a biography written about him not long ago by John Meacham, but I think it's just beginning the process of, of, of his reputation being uh, even better than it is today. In our country, if you don't get reelected, you're not considered a successful president. So my former boss, Jimmy Carter, not reelected, not considered successful. Gerald Ford did some good things, not reelected, not considered successful. The same with George Herbert Walker Bush. President Trump is determined to get reelected because he knows that if you are not reelected, you are not considered successful. In the British system, you can get reelected. People say, well, he's good or she's good, and you don't have to serve another four years. But in our system, you have to serve another four years, or theoretically you do. Unfortunately, um, sometimes people really don't want to serve another four years, but they feel they have to get reelected to prove how good they are. But to answer your question, George Herbert Walker Bush and my former boss, Jimmy Carter, is now 95 years old, the, the longest-serving former ex-president and the oldest ex-president. I think in time, some of the things he did will, will look much better. Hmm. Now, on page 37 of your book, during your interview with David McCullough about John Adams, uh, David said that in the modern era, people appear to be way too focused on money, power, and fame. And, quote, nobody talks about honor anymore. Back, whereas in the days of the founders, they walked around quoting Alexander Pope, who famously said, Act well your part, there all honor lies. So what do you think happened to the concept of honor as the ultimate aspiration for a leader? Well, it's not just leaders. I think this concept of honor is kind of dissipated generally through society, I and mean, people don't take it as seriously as they probably did. I don't know exactly why. Um, I would say about John Adams, he was somebody that was not that well-known, although he'd been second president of the United States and first um, vice president, and it shows you what a, a good book on history can do. David McCullough was going to write a book about the relationship between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. And as he dug into it, he realized that John Adams was not that well known. So he decided to write a book on John Adams, and he discovered that there were a thousand letters between John and Abigail Adams. And they were an incredible, uh, um, you know, uh, correspondence. And Abigail Adams, although not educated past the second grade, wrote letters that were spectacular. And uh, famously, she wrote a letter saying to John Adams, don't forget the women. Remember the women, which, of course, they forgot. They didn't really give any rights to the women. Um, John Adams was a person that was probably the most responsible for our deciding to become an independent country. He led the effort in the, in the Second Continental Congress to break away. But he was a, a disputatious person. He was always difficult to deal with. People didn't really like him. And so he didn't really like Jefferson that much either. And in fact, when Jefferson was sworn in as president of the United States, Adams left town earlier that day because he refused to, to be at Jefferson swearing in. Um, he did live to, to, to have his son become president of the United States, though he never actually saw him as president because they, 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 they weren't together at that time. Um, interestingly, you never see pictures of George Washington or John Adams smiling with their teeth. Why is that? They didn't have any teeth. 
John Adams, uh, toward the end of his life, had one tooth. Um, so uh, it, George Washington didn't have wooden teeth, as is reported often. He did have one tooth, though, and he used that one tooth to hold his um, dentures in. But the dentures were all made of animal teeth. In those days, if you, if, you know, they would take teeth from animals and put them together in dentures, but sometimes they would take human teeth and if you needed money, you would go to a dentist and he would extract a tooth for a dollar. You got a dollar if you needed money and no Novocaine or anything like that. That was a painful way to earn a dollar. Um, and it was said to be wooden teeth because his doctor was a dentist in New York whose name was Dr. Greenwood. And it got shortened to wooden, wooden teeth, but it wasn't, wood, wasn't wooden. Anyway, to answer your question, we don't have honor as much as we should, and I don't know exactly the reason. I just think that the press and the pressures are so great these days, and the desire for fame and money and other things are so great that I think people have forgotten the concept of honor, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the, your favorite questions that you've asked of several historians in the book is, if you could have dinner with George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, and you could ask him one question, what would that one question be? So I want to turn that around on hey. you, David. I know that your personal favorite president uh, is John F. Kennedy. So if you could have dinner with John F. Kennedy and were allowed to ask him one question, what would it be? Well, I guess the, the question that most people would privately want to ask him is, how could you have been so incautious in your personal life? Uh, in those days, uh, he did things that today would be staggeringly un unacceptable or it would be very unpopular. Um, but I, I, the more serious question, not about his personal life, would be, how close did you actually think we were going to come uh, to nuclear confrontation during the Cuban Missile Crisis? Some of you who may be my age may remember this experience. I, I, it's hard to believe this for people younger than me, and I can't I tell my children this, they don't believe it, but my seventh grade teacher, seventh or eighth grade teacher said, I'm not assigning you any homework this week because I don't think we're going to be here. We expected that nuclear weapons were going to be launched against the United States and we'd be wiped out. And it's hard to believe, but that's what she actually told us. It's not a, uh, a good thing to tell your, your, your students, maybe, but that's what she told us. Um, so the, the fact that we resolved the Cuban Missile Crisis without any weapons being fired and in a peaceful way, um, I, I would ask him how he, how he came about with that solution of the quarantine and how nervous was he that it wouldn't work and what would he have done? had we actually had a nuclear missile launched against us, against us, would we have retaliated? Well, let's go a little deeper on President Kennedy because he served less than three years. And in the most recent C-SPAN ranking, he's ranked number eight. And I've always been surprised at that. You probably think that's the right ranking. You've talked about his personal behavior was incautious, which is a wonderful euphemism. You say he, you acknowledge he lied to the American people when he ran in 1960, said there was this big missile gap when in fact he knew there wasn't one. You say he did not pass a single major bill through Congress during his time as presidency. And of course he engineered the disastrous Bay of Pigs invasion. As also, he also ramped up the American effort in Vietnam. So if we're going to assume that we really ought to judge presidents on the basis of substance as opposed to form, Give us your best uh, argument on why Kennedy's uh, substance over form makes him your personal favorite and merits his high ranking. There's no doubt that uh, I was impressed with him because I was a young boy and uh, I, you know, looked up to this great image that he had, and you know, everyone seemed to be impressed with the image. As you you peeled the uh, onion, you did see he had lots of challenges and problems. He was very ill, but did, wasn't honest with the American people. He had Addison's disease, which in those days was a fatal disease. It was basically your adrenaline glands were basically going to, um, in effect, um, kill you. Um, he took cortisone for that. And if you may have noticed, his face was very full. But that was because he was always taking cortisone, which had some side effects. One was it increases your libido, apparently. And I guess that may have been an account for some of the, what was going on. But... Um, he, he, he didn't pass any major legislation. Um, he did get the nuclear test ban treaty done with the Soviets. Um, he did get us started in Vietnam, um, though we didn't have that many troops there when he died. I think the reason uh, historians like him is that he, he basically inspired the American people to want to um, 
go into government service to give back to the country in some ways that may have been ephemeral, but I think the image was that he was trying to get the country started again when it had been languishing for a while. Now, in the book, I have an interview about Dwight Eisenhower. And when I was growing up, and some of you may have been uh, roughly my age, People made fun of Eisenhower because everything was so boring in those days. Nothing exciting happened. He seemed boring. But it turned out we had a very prosperous economy then. Uh, we built the interstate highway system. Uh, we regained our lead in, in a lot of scientific and technology areas. And it was actually a pretty nice time when you think back on it. But in the time, people didn't like Eisenhower that much. They thought he was too boring and not getting anything done. And Kennedy came along and projected youth and vigor and so forth. But to some extent, I guess I'm captured by that image a bit because I, I had it in my brain from when I was a, a young boy. Um, John Kennedy, uh, if had he been reelected, and I suspect he would have been reelected, um, you know, second term, he might have done a lot more. But sadly, in most second terms, most presidents don't get as much done as they would like. One of the reasons, I think, is that when you're elected president of the United States, you don't really know that much, and then you start, you know, learning the job. By the time you get to a second term, you're exhausted. You're, you're just tired. And uh, you don't really know uh, what you want to do so much, and a lot of good people are leaving. Uh, I remember one time when I was in the White House, uh, Jimmy Carter would say to me in a you know, little meeting, David, can you put together what my priorities are for, be for the second term? I said, wait a second, I'm 31 years old, you're President of the United States, you're asking me for your priorities for the second term? You should know what you want to be uh, reelected for. But I didn't say that, um, I just came up with some priorities. But for example, um, if you were to ask President Trump to be, and I do know President Trump reasonably well, um, I'm, you know, I'm not a political supporter and I'm not a political opponent, I stay out of politics, I, I don't give money to any politicians and so forth, but I do know President Trump reasonably well, and a number of you do as well. Um, if you were to sit down with him and, and say, what are your highest five or six priorities for the second term, I don't think he could articulate that because I don't think he's focused on that the way most presidents don't really focus on the second term. The objective is to get reelected. You'll figure out what you can say in the campaign. But I don't know that President Trump would say, these are the five or six things I really need to do in a second term. Very often, second terms don't work. Ronald Reagan's didn't work so well. Richard Nixon's obviously didn't work so well. Um, Bill Clinton's had some, obviously, problems in his second term. It's because I think your, your people are worn out. A lot of the good people have gone, and they've kind of lost their focus about why they want to be president to some extent. Well, when you talk about John F. Kennedy's power of inspiration, tell your story about how his inaugural address right. impacted you. Let me tell you about that inaugural address. So some of you may be uh, young enough or old enough to remember this. It was a speech given, it was only 14 minutes. And in those days, John Kennedy was not considered a great intellect, to be honest. We think he's a smart guy today. He was considered, he was a C student at Harvard, a gentleman C, not, not a great student for sure. Um, no Rhodes Scholar by a long shot. Uh, he had, a book had been written called um, Profiles and Courage. It won the Pulitzer Prize. And a, a, a gossip columnist in New York, in, in Washington, Drew Pearson, wrote that it was actually written by Kennedy's speechwriter, um, a very talented man named Ted Sorensen. And John, John Kennedy's father threatened to sue. Ultimately, there's some resolution of it. And the, the, the article was sort of withdrawn. But Ted Sorensen probably did write the book because um, John Kennedy was in the hospital at the time the book was really written. And it's hard to believe that he could have written uh, something like that in the hospital bed when he was almost dying um, from a back injury. Ted Sorensen probably wrote it. In fact, he wound up getting all the royalties from it. But John Kennedy was concerned that people didn't think he was intellectually that gifted. And therefore, for whatever reason, he was obsessed with the idea that people thought he had actually written the inaugural address. And he wanted to make people think he actually wrote it. Um, and, and FDR had the same thing. FDR wasn't intellectually gifted. He actually had a man named Raymond Moley write his inaugural address, but he wanted to convince people that he had written it. So when Raymond Moley wrote, wrote out the, the first inaugural address for FDR, FDR then wrote it out in his handwriting. He then showed it to people and said, I, here, I wrote my speech. Here it is in my handwriting. John Kennedy put that in his brain. He did the same thing. So three days before the inaugural inauguration is going to occur, he's flying back from Palm Beach on this plane called the Caroline, named after his daughter. Hugh Seide is in the plane um, as a reporter. He was then a Time Magazine uh, reporter for the White House. He's called by John Kennedy into the back cabin where Kennedy is, and he says, uh, Hugh, what do you think of my inaugural address? Take a look at it. What, give me some ideas. And Hugh Seide is saying, wait a second. The guy's going to be inaugurated in three days, and he's asking me now what his inaugural address would like. And so Hugh Seide wrote it, read it, and he saw you know, a couple pages in, in John Kennedy's handwriting. 
And so he later wrote, John Kenny wrote this himself, I saw the thing in his handwriting. Well, actually what happened was it was all written in advance. John Kenny took the text that Ted Sorensen had written and he wrote a couple pages out in his handwriting so he could then show Hugh Sidey that he had written it. So anyway, um, whether or not presidents write their speeches doesn't make a difference. John Kennedy um, and Ted Sorensen would say subsequently, if you give a speech, it's your speech. And, and today, we don't really care who writes a speech so much. If you give it, it's your speech. In those days, Kennedy was concerned that people thought he wasn't smart enough to write a great speech. The speech was, um, was written by Ted Sorensen with the help of Adlai Stevenson, putting some input, Arthur Schlesinger, John Kenneth Galbraith, and so forth. Kennedy was not a gifted speechmaker. Um, he had a lot of speeching, speaking coaches over the years, and they kept saying to him, you've got to look up, because he had this big mop of hair, and he looked down all the time, and people would say, all we can see is your hair. You've got to look up. And he, and, and he really wasn't a great um, communicator, but he practiced that speech over and over again. He would take that, the text of the speech, sit in the bathtub, which he did every, every day for his back, and he would read it over and over and over again. And finally, when it came to give the speech, um, he gave the performance of his lifetime. Interestingly, he was afraid that he was going to be one-upped at that event. Why? Because Stuart Udall, who then became Secretary of uh, Interior, said to him, why don't we add some eloquence, eloquence to the event and let Robert Frost, the greatest poet in our country, speak? And John Kennedy said, geez, I don't know. He might one-up me. Now, how can anybody one-up the president? But um, So they debated it back and forth. Finally, they said, okay, so Robert Frost was going to give this, this poem. He got up there in front of you, you may remember it, the the, the, the lectern was, was had, got on fire a little bit. They had to put it out. He gets up there, and he had a poem written for this occasion. And he's 86 years old. He gets up there, and the light was so bright because the sun was out. There was snow on the ground. He couldn't read his own uh, poem until he ultimately made a, he, he remembered from another poem he had written. He did it from memory. John Kennedy then gave up, took his top coat off to show his youth. And you can remember the pictures. The, the, you can see his breath coming out because it was so cold. It was you know, under 20 degrees there. And he gave this speech. And in 14 minutes, he did an incredible job. And the reason the speech is so successful, among other things, is that it never said, I'm going to specifically do anything. It, uh, many Lincoln's uh, Gettysburg Address or Martin Luther King's Address are the same thing. They don't actually say, I'm going to do something. It had no specific uh, legislative references. And it used a technique that is a very common and terrific technique in a speech. Um, it's called antithesis. Ask not what your country can do for you. Never fear to negotiate, and so forth. It would do these things, but it would use it in the, in the opposite sense. Ask not what your country can do for you, and so forth. And this use of antithesis occurs 23 different times in this speech, and it was a you know, well-delivered speech. After it was done, even his opponent said this was a great speech. And uh, so it was a speech my teacher went over with me in the sixth grade, word for word, line for line. And I've called it since poetry in prose form, which it really was. And you go back and you read that speech today. It's a Cold War speech. It's, it's, it's all about foreign policy, really. And it, it, it probably is too much of a pro-Cold War and too, too tough on, on, on terms of foreign policy. But it, it reads so well today because the language was just so brilliant. And he ended that, sentence, that, that speech with, I think, what is the best uh, part of that speech. He said, with history, final judge of our deeds, uh, let us go forth to lead the land we love, asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. And, you, you know, you can't beat that for, for a good sentence, right? And that, no, I can't beat that for a good sentence. Uh, and that uh, gave you a bump on the road to wanting to be a part of public service. Many people in my generation wanted to go into public service, maybe inspired by President Kennedy. And actually, President Kennedy, like many people, or many politicians, they say, let's do this. And then somebody says, that's a good idea. They don't have a plan for it. So he said, uh, why don't you all come in to help the federal government? Well, you didn't have a plan. So they had to quickly come up with uh, Peace Corps, which still exists uh, after 40 plus years. And it's worked out, but they didn't really have a plan to get all the people to come into government. And it's, the people were very, very young. Uh, John Kennedy, it's hard to believe he was only 43 years old when he was elected president. Only, the only person ever served early, younger was uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who became president at 42. Uh, Barack Obama was 47 when he became president. Uh, Bill Clinton was 46. Hard to believe, but Jackie Kennedy was 31 when she became first lady. And then when you saw the tragedies, um, she was only 34 years old. So hard to believe how young she was. Mm -hmm. Now, in your 16 chapters, only one of them is about women or a woman, and that's Cokie Roberts wrote a book called uh, 
founding mothers. So as you sized up your book and what would be in the 16 chapters, if you're giving one-sixteenth of it to the gender that constitutes half of the American people over history, did that give you any heartburn? Well, um, it's a very fair question. Um, in hindsight, I, I should have done it differently. What happened was when we were going to, to press, we, we, were, we had a, um, a woman, who, Annette Gordon-Reed, who had written a, a terrific book called The Hemings of Monticello about Thomas Jefferson's relationship with Sally Hemings. And um, the transcript didn't work well. We, we didn't have a perfect transcript, so we, we, we had to cut it out at the end. Um, and I have, for the series, interviewed a number of women historians, uh, among them uh, Drew Faust and Annette Gordon-Reed, um, and um, uh, most recently um, uh, Danielle Allen, and in the next volume, if there is a next volume, uh, many of them will be in there. Uh, but uh, Koki Roberts, who I, I spoke at, in effect, at a memorial service for her recently, um, she, she was a friend of mine, and I didn't realize she had breast cancer. She told very, very few people um, and how ill she was toward the end, and she died suddenly in the eyes of most people. Um, she wrote three books about women and what they had done in our country's history. And remember, in the early days of our country, women were not allowed to vote, of course, but they were also not allowed to own property if they were married. Everything had to be owned by their husband, and of course they couldn't hold office. So how did they have influence? Well, they had influence in this way. Uh, they would write in very elaborate letters to their husbands who were typically away elsewhere, and those letters were very articulate, mar much better than the letters the husbands were writing back. They also um, did use this um, social kinds of things to influence people. They would host parties, and that was where you actually got a lot of work done. There wasn't communications and so forth the way we have today. So if you really wanted to know what was going on, you'd have to go to a party that might be hosted by uh, the wife of a prominent person. So let me just mention one uh, a part of that Koki uh, refers to in the book. Um, you don't know how history would have been different, but Mary Todd Lincoln, on this weekend, the Kennedy Center, uh, where the Washburns will be, and their um, wife is a member of the Kennedy Center, Heather's a member of the Kennedy Center board now. We have the honors, uh, we have the Kennedy Center honors, some of you have seen this, um, and I'm the chairman of the Kennedy Center, as you heard, and I maybe I am because I still like John Kennedy. And <laughs> so um, I think I've given more money to things named after John Kennedy than anybody else in the United States. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but uh, anyway, we... we um, uh, we'll honor um, a number of people. Sally Field is one of them who played Mary Todd Lincoln in the movie Lincoln. And if you've seen that movie, um, there was a book by um, um, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and she told Steven Spielberg, I'm writing a book on Lincoln. And he said, well, I want to do a movie on Lincoln. And she said, well, I'm just starting it. Well, he optioned the book, and the book wasn't completed for 10 years. And the book is finally completed. They had stories written about the whole book, and move scripts, but they were too comp too long. It didn't work. In the end, the, the movie is only about five pages in the book about the passage in the House of the 13th Amendment. And uh, interestingly, if you've seen the movie, it was filmed ironically in the in the in the capital of uh, Virginia, which was then the capital of the Confederacy. You would say it's a strange place to, to film it as the capital of the United States. And and they try to make it look historic, but they forgot to take out a bust of Woodrow Wilson. So if you look at the movie, there's a bust of Woodrow Wilson there. Um, what happened is, a few days after the surrender at Appomattox, Lincoln and Mrs. Lincoln went to Virginia to see certain things. And there, um, Mrs. Grant and uh, Ulysses S. Grant were there. And Mrs. Lincoln started yelling at people. And uh, she was very rude in the view of many people and just had a terrible temper. And she did have a temper. Um, so Mrs. Um, Mrs. Uh, Julia Grant didn't really like being around Mrs. Lincoln. Okay, so on April the 15th, uh, Abraham Lincoln is committed to going to see uh, our American cousin at Ford's Theater. And he had a headache, he didn't really want to go, but his staff said, well, you know, you've already told people you're coming and so that people are anticipating it. So he said, okay, I'll go, uh, but I need to, when I have somebody go with me, let's ask Ulysses S. Grant and his wife Julia to grow. So the invitation goes out and Julia Grant says to her husband, no way am I going there with Mary Todd Lincoln. I can't stand her. She's terrible. Find an excuse. Let's get out of town. So they sent back word they were going to go visit their son in New York, which they weren't otherwise going to do. So they got on a train. They went to New York. So Lincoln didn't have anybody to go with. So he asked his young um, military aide, Basil Rathbone, uh, to go with him. And 
you know, he's a young aide. He wasn't really accompanied by a lot of military people. If Ulysses S. Grant had actually gone that evening with his usual military accompaniment, um, probably John Wilkes Booth would not have gotten into that uh, balcony and maybe history would have been different. So we can attribute Lincoln's assassination to his wife? Well, uh, I won't say that, but I would say uh, history would be different in, in, many, in many different things. Um, look. All right, next question. Uh, now, David, going back to the presidential rankings polls, uh, pretty much all of them rate Franklin Roosevelt number three behind Lincoln and Washington. Though after reading your interview with Jay Winnick uh, in the book about Franklin Roosevelt, I'm surprised he made anyone's top ten given his egregious indifference to the plight of Jews during the Holocaust. Well, so, David, you're, you're Jewish. You're a big donor to the Holocaust Museum in, in Washington, D.C. Where do you come out on FDR's ultimate legacy? Well, FDR served for president longer than anybody else, and he got us through the Depression, and he, a lot of the legislation that we now think is so important, Social Security, among other things, um, he was responsible for. And, and he did, uh, I think, lead us through the victory in World War II. So I think he would have to be in the top five or six presidents for sure. Uh, what you're referring to is that a, a Jay Winnick, a historian, um, did some research and showed that actually uh, the Holocaust was sort of known by our military, what was going on, not completely, and our State Department knew. And there were entreaties to President Roosevelt to try to bomb the, the, the railroad tracks that led to Auschwitz, among other places. And Roosevelt resisted that, in part because the State Department uh, some people say it was anti-Semitic, but State Department would say we have higher priorities, and the Pentagon would say we have higher priorities, and so that was not done. Um, and, and I think Roosevelt may not have realized how extensive the murders that were going on were. I don't know, but, but he, he clearly, it wasn't his best day, you could, you could argue. Well, your Reagan biographer, H.W. Brands, makes an intriguing comparison between Franklin Roosevelt and Reagan, of all people. But in particular, they both had the capacity to electrify the masses as the two great communicators of the 20th century, while in their personal relationships, they always kept distances with friends and family members with the possible exception of Nancy Reagan, even though she said there are times I didn't even know what my husband was thinking. But he also talks about how Reagan's political hero was Franklin Roosevelt. He voted for him all four times. So did you recognize the parallels between these two presidents who, in fact, oh. were polar political opposites before you read Brand's book and did the well, interview? Well, you know, Brand's was a person who wrote a good biography. He's a professor at the University of Texas. Um, he never actually met Reagan. Many biographers of Reagan had met him. In fact, the most famous authorized biographer, Edmund Morris, spent a couple years with Reagan and couldn't really figure out Reagan because he was so difficult to... To really penetrate. In fact, Reagan is interesting. It, you know, many people, you or politicians, you might realize are this way. Some people are very nice to their colleagues and so forth, but not so nice to, let's say, the masses. Let's say some people are 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 not very nice personally, but they're great to the masses. Reagan was a person that um, he he didn't have any friends. He, his only friend was Nancy Reagan. He, and Nancy Reagan kind of enveloped him, and she spent all of her time with him, and he kind of, she or whatever reason, they, he had no personal friends, honestly, and so he was very insular in some ways, and um, he basically um, you know, didn't really socialize with people for a long time. He had been a Democrat. He had been the head of the Screen, Screen Actors Guild, and not surprising, he's a Democrat then, and it, what converted him was that he, he was out of work as an actor. He was a B actor, but... He really wasn't getting any work. He finally got some job as being an MC, like in Las Vegas, and you know that wasn't a great thing for him. He wasn't. He couldn't really sing. He wasn't really uh, a dance person. He didn't really <laughs> have anything. And then all of a sudden, his agent Lou Wasserman came up with this idea that he would be the host of GE um, television show, DE series, and he kind of did that. Didn't take much time to be the host. He just read a couple uh, minute lines. But he would do as part of that. He would go around to GE facilities around the country, speaking up for GE. And the GE people were very, very conservative Republicans, and he kind of adopted their views on things. And he ultimately became a big believer in smaller taxes, um, stronger uh, defenses, and so forth. And it kind of enveloped him, and he kind of changed. Um, but, you know, I didn't really know him that well. People, friends of mine who did know him, say that he was um, 
an interesting guy, terrific person to, to spend time with. If you're going to have dinner with almost any president, you might want to have dinner with Reagan because he told great stories. And uh, Jim Baker, when he was chief of staff, used to go in and they, you know, it was well known that if you would, you know, you'd come in in the morning and you would, um, you know, tell a joke to Reagan, that he would like it. And Reagan would tell the jokes he told over and over again many times. And uh, Reagan was like an actor people would say, he would go in the morning and he'd get in the office around 9 o'clock and he'd say, okay, boys, what are we going to do today? And they would give him the script like an actor and he would go through it and play the parts very well and he was very good at it. But he wasn't as intellectually curious about things as maybe you, know, you might want. Um, but anyway, he was, uh, you know, a, a, I think a, a transformative president. In fact, Brand said if Reagan had not been president, not only would no one have ever written a biography of him, no one would have gone to his funeral, except possibly his wife. Well, I don't know if that's true, but I... I that's what he said. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, on. I, I wanted to mention one or two stories in the book before we can... Go. I, I mentioned the other night it was a couple of things, that, some of the most interesting stories that came out of the book. I'll just mention three, um, and not to incent you to buy the book, because presumably you've already bought it, but um, um, it's this... One that I told the other night, but it's my favorite story from the book. It, it's, um, and I apologize for those who were at the lecture the other night. But as you pointed out, I wanted to interview the Chief Justice of the United States as part of this. I am the chairman of uh, the Smithsonian, which is 19 museums and the National Zoo and so forth, nine research centers. And I thought the Chief Justice, who was the Chancellor of the Smithsonian, it'd be good if the members of Congress don't actually get to see him very much could come and hear from him about how the court really works. So it's not a history kind of thing, but I thought it would be good. So he agreed to do it. And at the interview, in the beginning, I said, Mr. Chief Justice, um, did you always want to be Chief Justice of the United States? And he said, well, no, that wasn't my ambition as a young boy. Well, did you want to be a justice, of, an associate justice of the court? No. Well, did you want to be a judge? No. Well, did you want to be a lawyer? No, I didn't want to be that lawyer either. Well, what did you want to be? I only wanted to be a historian. That's all I cared about was American history. I loved that subject. And I, my father said, John, there's no money in being a historian. You write books, nobody will read them. You'll spend all your time in the library. It's very boring. You won't be able to support a family. Do anything, but don't be a historian. And John said, that's all I want to be. So he said, okay, do what you want. Goes to Harvard, and he majors in history. history. Comes back from spring break, gets off at Logan Airport in Boston, gets in the cab, says to the cab driver, take me to Cambridge, please. Oh, are you a student at Harvard? Yes, I am. Uh, what are you studying? I'm majoring in history. Cab driver said, well, when I was a student at Harvard, that's what I majored in also. So, uh, <laughs> one of the most interesting stories in the book is by Scott Berg. Scott Berg is a great uh, writer. Uh, and many of these people, like Scott Berg, take 10 years to write these books. 10 years. He spent 10 years on Charles Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh was the most famous person who had ever lived on the face of the earth. And the reason he said that is that when uh, Prophet Muhammad, or Jesus Christ, Napoleon, whoever you might say were living, there wasn't electronic communications around the world. So if, if uh, Napoleon did something, people didn't know about it instantly. By the time that Lindbergh landed in Bourget Field in 1927, everybody was elect uh, linked electronically. So all of a sudden he became so famous because the whole world knew who he was. And he lived the rest of his life with this enormous fame, which he really didn't like so much. And, um, and it was amazing. He just flew across the Atlantic in 33 and a half hours. Doesn't seem that heroic today, but at the time it was, it was an enormous, uh, enormously heroic. Scott Berg spends 10 years of his life, access to the papers, access to the family, does everything uh, knows everything about the, the family, and he wins the Pulitzer Prize in 1999 for this incredible book. Turns out, after the book comes out, he gets a letter from somebody saying, well, your book isn't really that accurate. What do you mean? Meet with me, and I'll tell you what I mean. And he was intrigued. He's saying, this is a crackpot. What should I do? So he finally said, okay, he'll meet with the person. He met with the person. He said, the person said, um, you said that he, he um, had these children with Ann Morrow, his wife, but you didn't point out that he actually had seven children with three German women, uh, and I'm one of those children. What? Yes, he managed to have seven children out of wedlock with three German women, two of whom were sisters and didn't know that each were having affairs with, with Lindbergh at the same time. So uh, he had to amend the paperback edition. But, uh, you know, you could do all this research and not, not really know. One final story, David McCullough. 
David McCullough is Mr. American Spirit, Mr. America. He's wonderful. He, he looks like Mr. America. He's got this great voice. He's got the white hair. He's got uh, this great uh, manner about himself. And here's how he writes. Many, many people write books. I think I may have told this story the other night. I apologize for those who heard it. Uh, many people write a limited amount each day, and they, they're done. So Edmund Morris, when he would write on, on TR or Reagan, 300 words a day, done. If it's done in one hour, fine. If it's done in six hours, whatever it is, 300. Um, Andrew Roberts wrote a great book on Churchill. His view was you write until you drop at the end of the day. Start at 8 in the morning and go until midnight. Um, the way that David McCullough writes is he has an unusual way. He has a partner, his wife, of 65 years named Rosalie. He writes a paragraph, and then he gives it to her, and she reads it to him so he can make sure it sounds right. So back and forth. And uh, that's what they've been doing for all these years. So one time he wrote a book, I think it was on John Adams, and uh, he gave her a paragraph, and she read it to him, and he said, I think it's okay. Now she said, no, there's this one sentence in there that doesn't work. He said, well, read it again. Uh, it's okay. No, she said, it doesn't really work. Read it again. It's okay. She said, it's not. She said, he said, God damn it, it does work. Just leave it in there. She said, it's really not a good sentence. He said, God damn it, I'm the author. Hey, leave it in there. Okay. The book comes out, it wins the Pulitzer Prize. Gore Vidal writes a review saying, this is a spectacular book, the greatest book I've ever read of John Adams. But there's one sentence in there that just doesn't make any sense. And anyway, so anyway. And so uh, David McCullough uh, dedicates every book to Rosalie. Uh, right, he does. Now, so, many people don't realize this, but David actually started his career as a lawyer, a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School, uh, practiced law for 20 years, and to keep his mother happy, he maintains his law license at the D.C. Bar. So, as you mentioned, the last interview in the book is with Chief Justice John Roberts. So, with, with your legal background, and there's a lot of detail on the actual nuts and bolts of the job of being Chief Justice, what do you think is the hardest part of that job? The hardest part that Chief Justice has today, to be very serious, is uh, keeping the court from seeming political. Um, obviously, uh, it's ever since uh, the court's been political in views of many people for many times. But ever since Bush v. Gore, the court is seen many, by many people in the United States as being overtly political. That vote was, you know, the Republican members, uh, Republican appointees voted for Bush, Democratic members voted for Gore. It was widely seen uh, as political. And since that time, the court is often seen by many people as political. And therefore, as President Trump has said, you know, there are Obama judges or there are Trump judges. And I think what John Roberts is trying to do, maybe not fully successfully, is to say, this is not a political court. We look at the law, but many people still don't believe that that's true, and therefore he's trying very hard, and he did on a couple of cases like the uh, uh, Obamacare case, among other things, try to not be so overtly political. That's his biggest challenge. Thank All you right? very much. Thank you. David Rubenstein is not only incredibly brilliant and incredibly wealthy, Above all, he's incredibly generous with his time and money. I hope you have a clearer picture of American history because of what David has put together in the pages of the American story that he talked about in this podcast. David Rubenstein's new book is available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.